The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and also to you. From Isaiah 25, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, you have done wonderful things. And so we praise you and thank you. You have created the world and packed it full of good things. From ice crystals to wood stoves to tables crowded with turkey and gravy and jello with marshmallows, and pie. You have done wonderful things, and we thank you. While we live in a good world, we are not good, but in your faithfulness, you have not left us without hope in our sin, but you have entered into your world through the birth of your Son. Through Jesus, in his life and death, you have forgiven sinners, and now we can say, you are my God. You have done wonderful things, and so, as your people, we praise and thank you in the name of your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ, and amen. amen. Over the last couple months, we've been working through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, and by God's providential timing, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we come to the virtue of self-control, and it's not the self-control for the extra slice of pie that I want to look at, but something else that you most likely have overindulged in, your feelings. You have been taught from a young age to follow your feelings, to do what you want, to listen to your heart. This is not just the Disney world, but this is the Christian world. Remember, sola feels the new doctrine by feels alone. Feelings have become the authority in our marriages, work, friendships, and even theology. Suppose a couple in their marriage vows promises to love each other through, through better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness, and in health. But the fine print of all these vows is for as long as I feel like it. If you don't feel like loving your wife, or if you don't feel like working through your husband's sins, then you are free to leave because, well, hey, you don't feel it anymore. Feelings are like little kids. When spoiled and given everything they want and left to run wild, they become snotty-nosed little terrors and no fun at all. But when your feelings are disciplined and controlled, they become a delight to everyone around them. Your emotions need to be reminded that they are not in control. And often with a firm talking to you. Listen to Psalm 42, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I will praise him, the help of my countenance. The psalmist takes his feelings to task. Why are you cast down? Why are you feeling nervous, angsty, fretting, frustrated, 
depressed. Hope in God, for he is the help of your countenance, your attitude, your feelings. Your feelings need to be controlled, which returns us to the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. And it's worth pointing out that self-control, the control of yourself, is a fruit of the Spirit. That means that you controlling your feelings, your tongue, your dessert portions, your finger pushing that video button is not under your control. And this is not to give you a free pass, but it ought to turn you to the one who has the control. So what do you do with your feelings? You look to Jesus, you obey Jesus, you submit to Jesus, and your feelings will eventually blossom as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The prophet Isaiah says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Our Father, we confess that we have failed to control ourselves. This lack of self-control demonstrates our primary rebellion against you. We have rejected your control, and so we cannot control ourselves. We want to do what we want to do, regardless of what you would have us do. The desire to control ourselves is the sin from selfishness. The only true discipline and control comes from turning to you. If we obey and if we submit ourselves to you, then our choices, our words, our feelings will be obedient. And so we acknowledge our sin. Please have mercy upon us, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Turn our blood-red sin as white as snow. We confess our individual sins to you and Selah. We ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And amen. amen. Please rise for God's assurance of pardon. From Isaiah 29, verse 24. These also who erred in spirit will come to understand, and those who complained will learn doctrine. So, you have failed to control your feelings, your actions, you have sinned. The doctrine of the gospel is that Jesus has perfectly controlled himself through the power of the Spirit. He submitted himself to his Father at the cross so that your blood-red sins could be washed and made perfectly white. If you believe this and if you humbly confess your sins to Jesus, then your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. The sermon text this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter 6, the first four verses. Please give your attention. These are the very words of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, 
and they live long on the earth. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are our Father. We thank you that in Jesus, you have made us your children. We thank you that this was not done by the will of man, the will of the flesh, but it was done by you and by your spirit. So, Father, we pray that you would pour out that spirit upon us, the spirit of adoption, so that as your children, as your sons, we might take up this calling of raising up new generations to know and serve you. Father, give us the strength and the wisdom to do that, because we ask in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. You may be seated. Parenting is one of the most difficult and important and rewarding tasks in this life, particularly in a community that has been taught about the importance of child rearing over many years, many decades. This can add to the pressure, can add to the fear, can add to the disappointment when things are not going as we had imagined. It's, it's easy to imagine, for example, in a community that has been taught so often about the importance of uh, training up our children to know and love the Lord, it's, it's, it's easy to feel like everybody is staring at you constantly. It's easy to think uh, that, that you're being uh, judged all the time and, um, and imagining that um, clearly you are falling short Clearly, you're not um, doing what everyone thinks you ought to be doing. And, and so then this adds, then you've got this pressure going. And then in the middle of that pressure, then it, it can add to your temptation to, to sin. In your fear and in your anxiety and your worries, uh, maybe you're quicker to become angry. Your, your children are messing up everything, maybe. Or, um, or you're, you're, you, you are suspicious of other people around you and you and you're quicker to not give them a judgment of charity, and you think that they're probably accusing you of something or other. Or perhaps when difficult things happen in your family, the disappointment is all the more uh, harsh. Uh, you know, we're just, we're terrible, we're horrible. Uh, th this, is, um, th this is awful, we failed, there's, there's nothing we can do, and you begin to despair. But... Raising children well is a grace of God. Raising children well is a grace of God. Raising children well is a gift. Just like any other thing that God calls us to in this life, anything else that God calls us to, what he requires of us, he gives to us. And there is nothing that God calls us to that we do ourselves. Nothing that God calls us to is something that we can do ourselves. It's all a gift. It's all a grace. And so it is one of those gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to those who ask. It's one of those gifts that we must ask the Holy Spirit to give us, no matter where we find ourselves. Just really quickly as I begin here, I want to 
say some, maybe this is obvious, maybe this is clear, but I want to say it anyways. It can be easy when I, uh, the, the preacher says it's a parenting sermon and begins talking, he reads a passage and it's to children and parents, that m- many of you that might not find yourself in that particular spot may not, may not feel like, oh, this is, this is for me. Now, some of you are thinking, yes, this is what I need. Some of you are college students, and, and you're thinking, yeah, down the road, maybe I'll be married and, and have children. That would be wonderful. Or some of you maybe are grandparents, or maybe some of you are, uh, are, are, have not been given children. And you might think to yourselves, well, this is, this is not for me, and I, I, want to, I want to challenge you to, to, to rethink that. That, that we're, um, we're actually, um, this, while this responsibility is given specifically to moms and dads with children, um, nevertheless, um, one of the things that we, we understand as a covenant community is that we are, if we're not actually in the trenches with our own children, our own parents, um, we're in some fashion, we're, we're connected to people who are, and, and, and so we're to be cheering one another on, praying for one another. You, you surely have parents and children in your life, and so don't think, oh, this is a sermon for other people. No, this is a sermon for you to know how to pray for them how to encourage them, how to cheer them on, and occasionally lend the helping hand. I'm particularly aware of the realities of this as a pastor who didn't sit, I haven't, you know, specifically on Sunday mornings, um, most Sundays for most of the years that I've been preaching, I've not sat with my family. Because I've been up here every once in a while when, when I sit with my, my children, especially when they were younger, they would kind of look at me like, what are you doing here? <laughs> who are you? <laughs> And we've been blessed over the years by many helping hands. I can't tell you how grateful I am for the many saints who sat with my kids and sat with my wife and encouraged her and held squawking, wiggly toddlers and helped my wife because this is something that we're all in together. So as you you hear these words, don't think, oh, this is for someday down the road or this is for someone else here in the congregation. I sure hope they're listening. No, this is for you. This is for you. You may be a mom, a dad at some point, if you're not already. You may have, you have moms and dads. You have people that you know who are doing this in your life now. So take it all on board. It's here in the Bible for all of us. There's no part in the Bible that you say, oh, that's for someone else. No, this is, all of it is for all of us. So I want to think particularly, I want to ground um, some of the particular um, things that I want to admonish parents and children to this morning. I want to ground it, though, in what we might just call a theology of the kingdom. I want us to zoom out initially and think about, okay, wait, where, where are we and what are we doing before we get to the practical, before we get to the particular? Think about it in terms of the big picture, you know, what are children anyway? You know, what, what are we doing when we're parenting? The Bible is clear that the children of believers are not future citizens of the kingdom of God. They are present citizens of the kingdom of God. The children of believers are not future citizens of the kingdom of God. It's not that we hope one day they will be part of the kingdom of God. No, Jesus is clear that they are present citizens of the kingdom of God. He says this in Mark 10, verse 14, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Do not not forbid them. Let them come. They are part of the kingdom of God. They are part of God's kingdom. Let them come. Even this command here in our text in Ephesians 6, two children of believers to obey their parents, 
along all, alongside all the other commands in the Lord implies that they have a role to play in the Lord. And so if you've been reading through, you know, you know your Ephesians, you know that he's been um, giving a number of instructions. The wives are to submit to their husbands in the Lord, and the husbands are to love their wives as the Lord loves the church. Now children are to obey parents in the Lord. And in a minute, right after the passage uh, that I read, uh, servants are to be obedient to their masters in singleness of heart as unto Christ. Right? And so Paul is basically giving a scattershot exhortation to all the people in the church at the various vocations and their various stations in life. Wives, husbands, children, parents, servants, masters. And all of it is in the Lord because all of them are in the Lord. All of them are part of the kingdom. All of them have a role to play in the Lord. And so even this command to children, children, obey your parents in the Lord means children, you have a role to play now. Today. You don't have to wait till you're 15. You don't have to wait till you're 25. You don't have to wait till you're grown up to have a role to play. You have a role to play now. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, and he says, obey your parents. This is your calling now. You're a member of the kingdom now. Of course, you know the psalmist famously sings. We just heard it in our Old Testament reading a little while ago this morning. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Psalm 8, verse 2. God has established strength in the mouths of babies crying in the middle of the worship service. That doesn't necessarily mean we should let them all cry louder. (laughs) They're just doing their best. They're participating in the worship service to the extent that they can, and, and God says in Psalm 8, through the, through the mouth of David, that babes and nursing infants crying out, God ordains strength in their cries to silence enemies and avengers. Nursing babies are playing a role now in the kingdom. Nursing infants are playing a role now in the kingdom of God. Jesus also makes it clear that the faith of little ones is the exemplar for adults. Matthew 18. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18.3. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Their faith, the faith of little ones, is the exemplar. It's the pattern. You've got to believe like they do. You have to believe like they do. Not they have to grow up and become like you. No, you need to be converted and become like them. Little ones, little children, are the exemplars. They're the pattern of conversion. Remember David in Psalm 22. David again said, But you are he, he's praying to God, You are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Psalm 22. He's praying to God and says, God, you have been my God from my mother's womb. You taught me to trust while I was still nursing. I've been cast upon you from birth. David sees that he has been part of the kingdom. He's been part of God's covenant people since the beginning. God was beginning to teach him trust even before he was born. 
Likewise, you all know, remember the story of John the Baptist leaping for joy in Elizabeth's womb when, when Mary enters the room with Jesus there in her womb. This is why Jesus gives us such a stern warning. Again, Matthew 18, 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Matthew 18, 6. Again, just notice the assumption there. Jesus assumes these little ones that you're raising in, in covenant homes where there's a believer in the home who are being brought to church, these little ones, he says, they, they believe in me. They're being taught to believe in me. They're learning to believe in me. They're part of the kingdom. And so the, the, the stakes are high. Causing these little ones who believe in me to sin is terrifying, horrific. So, children are not future citizens of the kingdom of God. Children are present citizens of the kingdom of God. Of such is the kingdom of God, Jesus says. So, how are we to then treat them? How are we to raise them? How are we to love them? How are we to teach them? Well, Paul tells us here in Ephesians 6.1 that children are to obey their parents and that in verse 4, fathers are to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Both sides of this are recognizing that there is a fundamental brother-sister relationship between parents and children. You are, if you are citizens of the kingdom, then you are brothers and sisters. Just like I, I sometimes say that a husband and a wife in the Lord, in the first instance, before your husband and wife, your brother and sister. Maybe you've heard this, but in the early church there was rumors going around, slanderous rumors going around that, um, that Christians practiced incest. And this was because Christians only married brothers and sisters. Of course, the Romans didn't get the memo that it meant brothers and sisters in Christ, not brothers and sisters in the familial sense. But it was a good slander. It was a false slander, but it was a good slander. They knew that Christians only married other Christians. Well, in the similar sense, the world, if they're watching carefully, should say, parents, Christian parents, they treat their kids with a kind of respect and honor, almost at times like they think there's some kind of equality between them. They honor their children. They give their children a kind of dignity that we've never seen, and Christian children honor their parents in ways that we've never seen. They don't resent their parents. They love their parents. They're glad to obey their parents. There's a fundamental dignity of equality in Christ in the Christian family, in the Christian household, because we are in the Lord. Nevertheless, we have different roles to play. The father in particular is given the task of raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or the training and admonition of the Lord. Literally, those words mean culture and counsel. Culture and counsel. Fathers, you're to bring up your children in the culture and counsel of the Lord. The culture and the counsel of the Lord. This goes all the way back to the instructions that Moses gave Israel as they prepared to enter the promised land. Remember this in Deuteronomy 6. You shall teach them diligently. It's talking about the the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, 
and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6, verses 7 through 9. We are to talk about God's ways everywhere. This is the idea of culture. Okay, what, what, what is a culture? A culture is what you do all the time. It's what you do without thinking about it. It's the language you speak. It's the customs you practice. It's the food you eat. It's all these things. This is a culture. Culture is what you do without thinking too hard about it, really. It's because you got it from your parents and your grandparents. You get it from all the people around you. That's your culture. And so this, was, this goes all the way back to Moses, and it goes far back beyond him. But what he's talking about there in Deuteronomy 6 is you need to be thinking culturally with your children. You need to raise them up in the culture of Jesus. And the culture of Jesus means that you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about his work, you're talking about his word everywhere. When you get up in the morning, when you're eating cereal at breakfast, when you're in the car on your way to school, right, when, you're, when you're texting with them during the day, when you pick them up after school, you're talking about the things of God. You're talking about the things of the Lord. And not only are you talking about it, but you're writing it everywhere. You've got symbols of it and signs of it everywhere. You're putting up trees in your living room, right? And they're saying, Mom, Dad, why are we doing this? This is weird. Well, it's because Jesus is born. And we're doing things constantly to provoke these questions, to talk about these things. Why, why do we baptize? Why do we eat the bread and drink the wine? Why do we go to church every Sunday? Why, why do we not just do what, what, you know, whatever we want on the Lord's Day? Like, like, like other, every, other, everybody else does. Why, why do we do these things? Well, because the Lord saved us. Because we belong to the Lord. Because we're Christians. That's why. This is the culture of the Lord. So we're to talk about God's ways everywhere. And we're to talk about God's ways everywhere because his ways affect everything. His ways affect everything. All that we do is affected by the fact that we belong to God. Now, we're not our own master, we're not our own Lord, we belong to him, and we know that of our own self, the ideas we have aren't great. You say, well, it's just eating cereal. You know, you can eat a cereal and you be a pagan and eat a cereal and be a Christian, right? Right, but if you're a pagan, you're doing it in a self-centered way, in a greedy way, in a grasping way, in a demanding way. But if you're a Christian, you eat cereal like a Christian. You eat cereal to the glory of God. You eat cereal to bless the people around you. You eat cereal uh, um, to love one another and to love God with all that you are. It, it does affect things. It does matter. It'll, it'll affect the, the, the facial expression you have. The ties mentioned earlier, the countenance of your face will change. The attitude of your heart and what comes out of your heart and your words and your actions and your demeanor will be affected by what's on, going on in your heart. And so, you know, can, can non-Christians eat cereal? Of course they can eat cereal. But can they eat cereal to the glory of God? Can they eat cereal to the blessing and the benefit of their family? No, not ultimately. And so it matters. So we are to talk about God's ways everywhere because his ways affect everything. Everything. It affects it all. How we, the, how we learn, how we teach, how we get dressed, what we do with our hair, how we pay our bills, what we do with our money. It affects all of it. To love the Lord with all we are is to love his lordship over all we are. So right before this in Deuteronomy 6 is that famous command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. With all that you are. And that's what we're supposed to teach. That's what we're supposed to teach to our children. And so to love the Lord with all that we are is to love his lordship over all that we are. We love Christ being king over our heart, 
over our mind, over our soul, over our strength. We love him being Lord over it all because he knows best. He knows what he's doing, and so we love him being in charge of it all because he knows best. And we love his rule, we love his authority, we love his lordship over it all because it was directly related to our deliverance. So again, continuing in Deuteronomy 6, Moses says, And when your son asks you in a time to come, saying, What is the meaning of these testimonies, these statutes, these judgments, which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. Why do we keep the rules of the Lord? Why do we keep his culture? Why do we do these sacrifices? Why do we keep these feasts? Why do we do these things? It's all grounded in the fact that he saved us. We were slaves in Egypt, and he brought us out with a mighty arm. We were slaves in Egypt, and he sent Moses in, and Moses did these mighty signs, and he delivered us. That's why. And you, and you might not always be able to connect all the dots between this particular rule. Like, why, why can't you trim the side of your beard, Dad? That's one of the laws, right? But the answer is because God brought us out of Egypt. (laughs) Well, how does that work? (laughs) Well, the the, the bottom line is he's the Savior. And when he saves and if he wants to give us, you know, tips on beard maintenance, he can do that. He's the Lord. He saved our lives. And if he saved our lives and he delivered us from that great thing, then he can tell us what he wants to do. He's the Savior. If he's the Savior, he can be our Lord. We submit to him because he's good. You can trust him. He came for us. He heard our cries. He delivered us. He delivered us against all these odds. Who would have thought he could deliver us from the greatest empire in the world? He did it. And so, son, we do whatever he says. We love him because he saved us. And, of course, this transfers right over to the Christian era. Our story is still the Israelite story. You can still tell your children because God brought us out of Egypt. That's still our story. But now we have even better than that, because Jesus rose from the dead. That's why, son. Why do we do these things? Because Jesus rose from the dead and saved us from our sins. He saved us from the greatest Egypt ever, death itself. Now when we are dead, now when we die, we don't have to stay dead. Our sins don't condemn us to hell. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's why we're Christians. That's why we do these things, son. That's why we put trees up in our our living room. That's why we put lights up everywhere. That's why we make a big deal about the birth of Jesus. That's why we go to church on Sundays and worship with God's people. That's why we tithe. That's why we give generously to those in need. That's why we eat dinner together and we fellowship together and we read the word and we sing psalms. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He saved us from our sins. That's why, son. And so it's all about the gospel. It's all about God's grace and the freedom that he's given us. The whole point of the law the whole point of following God, the whole po- point of it, was to talk about God's grace, talk about God's salvation. It was to talk about how he gives us freedom. So the point of parenting is to celebrate God's grace and freedom. That's the point. You just you know, put it on your refrigerator or something. The point of parenting is to talk about God's grace and freedom everywhere. Fathers, bring your children up in the culture of the Lord. In the culture of Jesus, which means that you want to talk about and put up God's grace and freedom everywhere. 
It's on your fridge. It's on the calendar. It's on your phone. It's when you're talking about it at, at breakfast. It's what you're talking about at lunch. It's what you're doing at dinner. It's what you're doing when you're talking the kids into bed. What are you doing? You're talking about God's grace and freedom. You're talking about his salvation. Isn't it wonderful, children? We were sinners, condemned to death. We deserve to die. We should go to hell forever. And Jesus brought us out. He went down into the death we deserve. And he was crucified for our sins. And God raised him from the dead so that we might be delivered from our sins. Children, isn't that wonderful? That's why we give thanks before every meal. You think this is just something we do? No, we give thanks for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because Jesus rose from the dead. Children, do you get this? Right? This is what we do. We give thanks for it all because he's given it back to us. He's given us life back, and now it's all a gift. We do it all out of gratitude because Jesus has risen from the dead. He set us free. It's all about that. And this, of course, also means that in a Christian family, a Christian culture is going to be full of confession of sin and forgiveness. Christians are the people who know what to do about sin. Christians are not those people who don't sin anymore. Right? If you don't sin anymore, please leave now. No, seriously, get out. <laughs> right? we, no, Christians are not people who don't sin anymore. Christians are people who know what to do about the sin. That's the difference. And so if you're, you're trying to instill a Christian culture in your home, and you as the father hardly ever say anything about confessing sin at all, and every once in a while, maybe after you really blow up, you sort of say, well, sorry. And that's it. You're lying about the gospel. You're lying about the gospel. To be a Christian, to be a Christian parent, means that one of the most central tasks you have to embody and to teach them is that not that you don't sin anymore, but that we know what to do about the sin. Right? We, we say the name Jesus. What does the name Jesus mean? It means Savior. Right? That was what the angel told Mary. His name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's the central thing about being a Christian. It means you're a sinner and you need a Savior. And so every time you say Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen, in Jesus' name, amen, whenever you're praying, whenever you're saying Jesus' name, you say Jesus, you're saying, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I'm a sinner. We're sinners. We need to be forgiven. We need to be saved from our sins. And so central to inculcating a Christian culture in your home will be constantly dealing with sin, not not ignoring sin, not making excuses for sins, not trying to sweep the sin under the carpet or pretend it away. It's dealing with the sin. We're Christians. We know what to do with sin. And so you need to be teaching your children constantly about this, and you do it by leading, first of all, by example, by confessing your own sins. You confess your own sins to one another, to your children. Deal with it. But then as you deal with the sin in your children, you're doing it because you know that they need what you know. It's not just that they're, they're making trouble. They're making life difficult. It's what they need to be saved from their sins just like you do. And so this is part of what it means to be a faithful counselor. You're to bring Christian counsel to bear. This is, this is the other aspect, the teaching aspect of being a parent. You're to install this Christian culture everywhere, but then what you're constantly doing is you're teaching them, and you're teaching them that Jesus died for sin. Not that we don't sin. Not that we're deeply embarrassed by sin. Not that we don't know what to do about sin, but that we know what to do. We're Christians. This is why when, when Tommy hits Susie, and you stop and you say, no, you can't do that, and you need to ask her forgiveness. And now we're going to ask God's forgiveness. Because we're Christians. 
right? This is what we do. We are Christians. This, does, this means we know what to do with sin. And if you know what to do about sin and you're dealing with sin in a Christian way, your home should be full of joy. This is the heart and soul of Christian joy. The heart and soul of Christian joy is not being good. You're not good. We are not good. The heart and soul of Christian joy is the, is the joy of forgiveness. That you've been forgiven. That you deserve the judgment for your sins. You deserve trouble for your sins. It's complicated. It's messed up. And you contributed to it. And God in his mercy forgives sins. He washes people clean and he gives them a new start. That's, the, that's Christian joy. Christian joy is grounded in the joy of forgiveness. And so if you want your home to be a joyful place, it needs to be a place where sin is being confessed openly, honestly, and dealt with, and forgiven. Jesus died so that when we confess our sins, we acknowledge that he had to die for that sin, and then he washes us clean. That's, the, that's Christian joy, and that's the only kind of joy that can make a family a happy place to be. So the tenor of our homes, Christian homes, should be joy if the center of our joy is the confession of sin and regular, constant, honest forgiveness because we are Christians and we have a Savior. Now, in addition to this, the command here that's given to children is to obey parents. This assumes that parents are to teach obedience. They are to teach obedience. The first act of obedience is confess your sins and believe in Jesus and be forgiven. That's the very first act of obedience that children need to be taught. Confess your sins, forgive one another, receive Jesus. Believe in Jesus for, for his grace. But this is a lifelong task. The central task of parents is teaching obedience to God. We live in an arrogant and a sentimental world that thinks it knows better than God's word. We live in an arrogant and sentimental world that thinks it knows better than God. Right? And so you have all kinds of studies coming out telling you what you're supposed to think and what you're supposed to do with your children. And, and the, the, quotation, the quoting of God's word is never happening. Right? The Bible is not quoted, is not sourced as a, as a piece of authority, as a source of authority on parenting. Because we think we know better. Because we feel bad about what we think is harsh or unloving in God's word. But we are Christians, and he is our savior, and so we go to God's word. Young children must be taught from a young age to obey their parents. Young children must be taught from a young age to obey their parents. This is the parents' duty to teach, and it's the children's to learn. The same psalmist, of course, who said he learned to trust God from his mother's womb, also said he was conceived in sin. Psalm 51, verse 2. So everything that I said about children being members of the kingdom is not to be taken in some kind of sentimental, um, sappy way, and children are just so cute and innocent. They are cute, they are not innocent. They are cute, but they are not innocent. They're born in sin, they're descended from Adam, just like all of us, and so their natural tendency is to sin, their natural tendency is not to obey. Young children are not naturally inclined to obey. So being part of the kingdom doesn't mean that any of that is wiped away. It doesn't mean that somehow that children born to Christian parents uh, don't have a sin problem. They do. They need Jesus just like we do. 
But the Bible does teach that they are designed to be taught God's grace. They are designed to be taught God's grace. And as parents prayerfully teach God's grace to children, they can and do learn it. This is the natural way that God has established things. They are, not, they are naturally in rebellion. They naturally hate God. They naturally do not want to obey. But they are designed to be able to be taught to obey. They are designed to be able to receive this grace. So Proverbs 22:15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Notice it doesn't say innocence. It doesn't say innocence is bound up in the heart of a child. It says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. What will you find in the heart of a child? Foolishness, folly. But the verse goes on. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs 22, 15. In the ordinary course of things, when Christian parents faithfully seek to drive foolishness from their children through regular, loving spanking, God blesses children with wise hearts. This is what the Bible teaches. Foolishness is found in the heart of a child, but parents who lovingly, consistently, faithfully spank their children will drive that foolishness out of their hearts. This is what God says. This is in God's word. And you say, but studies show that spanking teaches children just to hit. Right? But who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe God's word or are you going to believe studies show? You know, the... the the, 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 the American Surgeon General once advised everybody to have a cigarette after every meal. It was good for digestion, you know. Studies show, right? Studies show is the most awful authority ever. Right? The studies show, they, they come back, you know, they have to revise those science books every year. Right? We used to think that putting, you know, cutting somebody and bleeding them for a while was good for them. Right? Studies show. How many Christian physicians are in heaven now going, oh, God, literally, I mean, God, I'm sorry, you know, what did I do? How many people did I send to heaven a lot faster than I needed to, right? Studies show bleeding is good for you, right? Well, okay, do we learn anything true? Yes, we do, we do learn true things, but we need to be humble. And when the studies show is going directly against God's clear word, then our response should be, no, I'm not going with it. God's word says that folly is bound up in the heart of the child and God has designed the world in such a way that faithful, loving, diligent spanking drives the folly away. Who are you to think you know better than God? This is from God. It goes on. The rod and rebuke give wisdom. The rod and rebuke. It's not just rod. There are other tools like correction, admonition, rebuke. These things give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, 15. Letting the child do what he wants. You say, well, I, just, I believe in free spirits. Right? And you also then believe in bringing shame on yourself. That's what it leads to. Well, I don't want to have a tyrannical dictatorship. Well, do you want shame? The Bible says that if you correct your child, this will give wisdom. And if you don't, it will bring shame. This is why regular, prompt, corporal discipline is loving. It is loving. It is not harsh. It is loving. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Right? To spare the rod is to hate your child. It's to hate them. 
but to love him is to discipline him promptly. The rod lovingly administered is love. But notice, of course, the rod is not automatically love. Spanking in anger, spanking in frustration is not love. It is, nor is it love to administer the rod long after an offense has been committed. And this is the worse the younger they are. The younger they are, the more immediate they need it. Spanking in anger, spanking in frustration, disciplining in these ways is not love. But the loving, gracious, consistent discipline of children is love. Related to all of this is the implied biblical advice, do not try to reason with young children. Do not try to reason with young children. They don't care how you feel about it. If they can barely make full sentences, then do not try to make longer sentences with them. Yes, I know, they're learning to talk. But they don't try to reason with them. That's not how God's wired them. Now, if your son is 13, you must reason with him. You must reason with them the more that they develop the ability to reason. But it doesn't really matter how you feel right now. It doesn't really matter how it made you feel. And feelings are often manipulative. We're not trying to get our children to obey because it will make us happy. It will make us happy in the long run, but the reason why we want them to obey is because it pleases God, because it's right. And so do not unintentionally teach your children that your feelings are the, are the highest authority of the home. Your feelings are not the highest authority of the, of the home. Jesus is the highest authority in the home. Children must simply be required to obey right away, all the way, and cheerfully. If they do not obey right away, all the way, and cheerfully, they're not obeying. A child that walks out of the room to obey, stomping his feet and fussing, is not obeying. A child who dithers for five or ten minutes, doing five other things first, and then sort of slowly crawling over towards the thing that you told them to do is not obeying. Right? You must understand this, parents, and you must teach it to your children. Your children need to know instinctively that if I do not obey right away, all the way, and finish the job and do it cheerfully, I've not obeyed. Because this is what God requires of us. The point of it all is not because that they have to follow you that way for the rest of their life. No. In a few years, they're going to be gone, and they're going to raise their own families. The point of it is they're to do this with God. God is their father. God is their king. And God requires us all to obey him right away, all the way, with a cheerful heart. And, and, when, and the thing is, is when you hold your children to this standard, it's going to be very convicting to you. It should be. How often do I do that? How often do I dither for 15 minutes not going to confess my sin to my wife? How long do I do something that I know I need to do, grumbling under my breath the whole time? These stupid dishes. Take out the garbage. Sure, I'll take out your garbage. <laughs> right? right? And then your child sits there and you know, does their thing. and you, How can you do that? thing I always do, right? And the answer, of course, is not to say, well, I guess I can't discipline them. 
No, the answer is you must go discipline them now. And on the way to the bathroom, on the way to the bedroom, on the way to the woodshed, you better be confessing your own sin all the way there. God, forgive me for having that same attitude I see in my daughter. Kill it dead. And then you deal with it. Children don't know how they should feel about sin. They don't. Ty was talking about feelings earlier. Their feelings are not, they're still being developed. They don't know how they're to feel. They're learning how to feel. And so one of the most important reasons for disciplining your children is you're actually teaching them how to feel. You say, you know, they, they you know, smack the little sister. Smack. You're like, you know, how do you feel about that? A three-year-old boy's like, I feel pretty good. <laughs> Got the toy, and she's crying. Right? The whole point of disciplining him is to say, you must not feel good about that. If you keep going down that path, you end up in jail. Right? You keep hitting people when you, they don't give you what you want. Well, pretty soon, you hit with baseball bats, and then you hit people with bullets. Right? Uncontrolled, unbridled anger, frustration ends in misery. You must feel awful about that. So come with me, son. I'm going to teach you what it feels like. And you give him a tiny little taste of it. A few spanks on the backside. And he cries. Does that hurt? Good. It's going to hurt for about 30 seconds. Because I'd rather you have that little taste of pain now than a lifetime of misery. That's love. And you're teaching your son how to feel about sin. There's a reason why children that grow up frequently, without this kind of teaching, don't feel bad about sin. I look at porn all the time. I feel fine, somebody says. Why? Because they were not taught to honor their mother. They weren't taught to honor the image of God. They've been feeling fine about their sin all their life, and that's all they know. I don't feel guilty when I lie. Because you weren't taught to feel awful when you lied. Every trip to the woodshed or wherever you have designated should be accompanied by prayer, forgiveness, full reconciliation, and restitution as age appropriate. Obviously, when they're tiny, it's just real quick. Slap on the hand. God, please forgive her for fussing or touching something. All forgiven. Big hugs, kisses. It's over in 30 seconds. A little bit older, you can actually you know, haul them off to the designated area. You hit your sister, that's sin, it's anger, it's frustration, you didn't have self-control. Here's, you're going to have three spanks, okay? All forgiven, let's pray. God, please forgive Johnny for hitting your sister. Help him have self-control, amen. Now you're all forgiven, let's go talk to your sister. You run out to sister, give sister a hug. Sister, say, I forgive you, I forgive you. All right, we're done. You know, it's like three minutes. But every, and obviously as, as, as the children get older, you'll spend more time talking with them. Do you understand why, why, why this happened? What's going on? But when they're little, it's quick, it's swift, it's sweet, and it should restore full fellowship. At the end of it, if, peop- if people are not smiling and actually happy and joyful, you haven't, you're not done yet. You haven't actually accomplished your mission. You say, well, I spanked him. Yeah, but is he joyful? No, he's still stomping his feet. Well, try again. You didn't succeed. You didn't finish. Some toddlers will require battles of the will, and parents must commit themselves to winning. Sometimes this will require stretches of hours, days, or a couple of weeks of intense focus. Dads, this is for you. You don't say, well, um, good luck, honey, I'll be at work. 
No. You must oversee this. You must see to it that you bear the burden of this, the brunt of this, if it's going to be like that. And of course, sometimes, you know, you need to take a break. You need to say, all right, it's, it's 9 o'clock. He still hasn't eaten his peas. Okay? You're going to go to bed, son, and in the morning, peas for breakfast. We'll try again. And, and, you know, so that you remember his frame. But nevertheless, you must win. Don't give up, parents. Don't give up. I know sometimes it's incredibly frustrating. Sometimes it feels like you're not winning. You're not getting anywhere. Don't give up. The peaceable fruit of righteousness is worth it. God will bless you. Scripture is clear that children must be taught to honor and obey father and mother. This is clear. Therefore, mothers have significant responsibilities in the training up of children, and this is included in the parents in verse 1. But Paul here clearly singles out fathers. Fathers, you must take responsibility for this. You must not provoke your children to wrath, but you must train your children up in the culture and the counsel of the Lord. Fathers, you in particular are responsible for this. But we live in a father-messed-up world. We live in a father-hungry world because we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. None of our fathers were perfect, and some of our fathers failed significantly. None of our fathers were perfect, and some of our fathers failed significantly. And so some of us are tempted to repeat the sins of our fathers by being harsh or being distant or some of both, depending on the day. Some of us work too much. Some of us just don't know how to relate well to our children. So how can flawed, messed up men hope to be faithful fathers? The answer is that you must have a new father. Every one of you must have a new father. The only good fathers in this world have a perfect father in heaven. The only good fathers in this world have a perfect father in heaven. And his perfection is particularly evidenced in his pity. Listen to Psalm 103. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So, do you pity your children? Fathers, are you tender? This is not sentimentalism. This is Christian love. How did God remove our sins from us? He sent his son who died for them. This is not sentimentalism. This is not feel gooeyness. This is not the father just playing Hallmark music. This is the father sending his son who died for our sins, who was crucified for our sins so that he might have compassion on us, so that he might be tender with us. He was hard on his son so that he might be soft with us. Be gracious to us. So are you tender? Are you gracious? You cannot be a tender father unless you have the Lord as your tender father. But this is only possible by the spirit of adoption. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15 the spirit that we've been given, and this glorious irony is the spirit of adoption. 
this idea that, that we, we are not his and yet he's made us his own. We ran away. We ran away. We rebelled and yet he's made us his own. That's the spirit you need for your children. You need the spirit of adoption, recognizing that your children are not your own. They're the Lord's. They belong to him. And he's given them to you and so you must love them with the spirit of adoption. They're not yours. They're his. And so honor them as his. Love them as his. Teach them as his. Discipline them as his. You can't be a tender father until you have the Lord as your tender father. You can't be an attentive father unless the Lord is your attentive father. The only good fathers in this world are the fathers who have a perfect father. The father in heaven. And they have the father in heaven as their father. Because Jesus died in their place. This is what it means to be parents in the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we commit all these things to you. Parenting is an enormous task, and we confess to you that we, every one of us, are failures. If we actually added up what we had done in our own strength, Father, it would be utterly pitiful. And so we confess to you that we don't deserve for our children to be faithful. We don't deserve for them to be obedient. And so we cry out to you for the mercy and the grace of faithful children. Father, you have promised us generations of faithfulness. And so, Father, we ask for it, not because we deserve it, but because we know it's a gift that you delight to give. So, Father, pour out on us the spirit of adoption, the spirit that causes us to cry out to you as Father. And so, Father, teach us to be faithful fathers and faithful mothers and faithful children and aunts and uncles and grandparents and brothers and sisters. Because we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Paul says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Christ Jesus did not come into this world for good people. He did not come into this world for people who have it mostly together. He did not come into the world for children who almost always honor their parents or for parents who really are pretty attentive. Jesus did not come into the world for people who always tell the truth, never cheat, Never lust and always forgive right away. No, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like Paul, who blasphemed and persecuted. And Paul continues, However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me, first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul says, He received mercy so that Jesus might show his patience to all who would believe as an example for everyone to come. Paul had studied the law. He probably knew much of the Old Testament by heart. He was the good kid, straight A's, on a roll, on his way to a successful career in the Jewish world. And when Jesus showed up, Paul saw him as a troublemaker, and Paul quickly made a name for himself, seeking to stamp out the fledgling Christian church, becoming famous for overseeing the murder of Stephen. Despite the clean outside, despite all the Bible verses and everybody thinking that Paul was a righteous man, he was actually at war with God. And yet God was long-suffering with Paul. God let Paul ride all the way up to Damascus, breathing threats, and then knocked him down and told him he would now have to stop kicking against the pricks. And so, this meal is not for people who have it all together. This meal is not for good parents, good kids, this meal is for sinners, for those who have failed and though they know they need mercy. Jesus came for sinners, and he has long-suffering for mercy.
for all, he has long-suffering mercy for all who believe in him. So, do you need mercy? Then you are most welcome. This meal is for you. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Remember as you go out this morning that God's grace is not different kinds of grace. It's not like you get special grace at the beginning and middle grace for the middle of the Christian life and final grace for the end of the Christian life. No, all of God's grace is Jesus. It's just Jesus. There's no middle man. There's no middle thing. It's just Jesus. It's God for you. He's come for you. And he comes for you at the beginning. He comes for you in the middle. And he will carry you all the way to the end because he is God for us. That's, who, that's what God's grace is. It's Jesus for us. And so whatever you have to deal with now, whatever you have to walk into this afternoon or next week, go with Jesus. Seek his face. He is God's grace for you. Now receive the blessing of Jesus. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen.